And welcome back, or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? Steve, you already know I am pumped, I'm excited, I am enthusiastic to give the people what they want. That is right. I am too. It's a wonderful day. We are actually recording just before the World Championships get started. By the time you hear this, they'll be going on or maybe even finished. So (laughs) before we go into that, though, you know what gets me excited, John? Stephen. Every day. Selling books? I know that gets you excited. It does. (laughs) Selling books. Right now, you might notice I've been on every podcast in the world. And that's what happens when you're in book selling mode. I had an athlete Mm -hmm. who was like, I heard Steve on this podcast i like i listen to every day it's a big time podcast i go i know cool huh and you've stayed at his house it's just a normal dude yeah yeah there there it is but you know so if you're interested i'll just pitch it right now do hard things my latest book you won't regret it lots of good great feedback and um in fact i had last week it was pretty cool i had uh killian journey the world-class mountain runner just tweet out a picture of it and being like, I'm reading this before he does this hard rock hundred miler. That's awesome. Wow. Cool. If it, if it's good enough for one of the best, you know, ultra runners in the world training for a hundred miler, it's good enough for you. But I was going to say, John, although I'm excited about the book, you know, what really gets me excited though, is heading on over to the scholar clubhouse and reading all the insights and all the dialogue on all the different training stuff. We have so many different threads going on from strength and conditioning being broken down to mental fitness, to biomechanics, to high school coaching. Last week, we actually had a great monthly Zoom call where we just went over what's what's kind of the role of the coach and... How do we create culture and buy-in? Mm, yeah. It's a tough nut to crack, but it's like we had, I mean, over 25 coaches join us and everyone give a little bit of insight. And, you know, everyone has a different approach, like say, you know, a recipe, if you will, you know, cooks in the kitchen, but all approaches are sound and work. And I learned a lot. I mean, frame of references and orientations and perspectives I didn't even think of were laid out with highly successful um coaches documenting why this works my favorite though was a story from sean o'day about his high school coach who was one of the top underrated minnesota high school coaches and his mission wasn't necessary to produce the most high performers who would go on to you know win ncaa titles or run sub four in the mile his goal with his male athletes was to produce the most sub five minutes, or as we coined in the training talk live, doing good better. And it's like, just that's all we have. Sometimes that's all we have to do is we just have to do, do good, just a little bit better. And if you can do that, a lot of benefit can happen because we have this cult of excellence where it's all about excellence and the highest level performance possible and peak performance. And those are all really good taglines. But the pathway that Steve and I have always talked about and as Steve's books articulate is it's just doing the basics a little bit better and a little bit more consistent. There's nothing really, quote unquote, special about it. 
Yes, I love it. So you know what's great? If you want to ha- hear that conversation, it's archived in the Scholar. Yes, program. I know. If you so haven't you... signed up, you can listen to it. Exactly. Get those insights not only from John and I, but everyone else. So check it out. Scholar program. A dollar a day still getting cheaper by the day because inflation keeps going up. (laughs) We have not adjusted for the 9% inflation of the last quarter. It's coming though. We're holding off as long as possible. You know, you listen to this podcast in a couple months, it might be a dollar and a quarter a day. So get in while the getting in's good. That's right. All right. Today we've got an exciting podcast running half truths and you know advice to be ignored yes this this is this is going to be interesting because we've done what we've gotten wrong we've done you know misconceptions or things that we believe are true and aren't but this is this is what our podcast is all about the nuance the things that ah you know there's some truth behind that, but should we really listen to it mm. or should we ignore it? Mm. And that's what we're going to cover today. So let's let's dive into it, John. All right. So this comes from actually the Runner's Training Guide, which was put out by Runner's Books or World, Runner's World Magazine Publications back in 1973. And in it, there is a passage called Advice to be Ignore, Running Half-Truths. And they describe it as this. These can't exactly be called myths of running training. They're more like half-truths, which because of the misconceptions they convey can be worse than lies. There's enough truth in them to lure runners into trap. Everyone who runs hear these statements. They all trace back to ignorance or misapplication of the basic principles outlined in the last section. And the last section of that book was a really good section on uh, guiding principles of training. We won't go over that. I haven't told Steve about any of these, so we're just going to go down and he and I are going to riff on them one by one. So this is going to be a lot of fun. All right. The first running half-truth is the harder I work, the better I'll be. Go. <laughs> oh, man. So this is this is important because this is the one that it, we all fall for. Yeah. And this is this is the central tenet of high school training. And, and as we've talked about, John... This does apply, but it applies for a very small amount of time. It applies as we went, one of our very first podcasts, we called it the the clean slate phenomenon. And when you are a high schooler or a new runner or what have you, the harder you work, the better you will get. It's true for a little bit because you have a clean slate. So you adapt to everything. And if you add more stress, you're going to adapt. The problem is that falls apart once we get past that that narrow short window where we just adapt to everything. And what happens is if we keep that mindset, okay, then it puts so much emphasis on the work that if I just work harder, work harder, work harder, I'm going to get better. And it doesn't realize the balance as, you know, one of my books kind of puts it, stress plus rest equals growth, simplified. But if you want to look at the complicated, like how do we adapt to any stressors? Well, we have to have this ebb and flow and this ebb and flow in the right places and the right directions. And then the last thing that I'll, I'll say as well on this one is effort isn't tied to stimulus. So sometimes 
it's better to work, quote unquote, easier and you will get a better stimulus. For example, when we look at almost any kind of neurological training effect we're looking for, right? Where we want that neural stimulus to be very, uh, very high and profound, which means we need to be recovered and rested between every set or what have you. So in a weird way with workouts such as, you know, sprint or mechanics training, the harder we work, the worse our stimulus probably is for adaptation. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad, really glad you brought that last point, Stephen, to segue your perspective to mine. I'm going to go to the nine-tenths rule. So the nine-tenths rule, I've been reading about this a lot because I've been reading Bud Winter, Bill Bowerman, uh, revisiting Igloid texts. Um, the, even in strength conditioning world, uh, the old-time weightlifters always talked about the nine-tenths rule, which is never go above nine-tenths. Ever. Don't ever do it. And why? Well, uh, Soviet researchers found that if you go above your, your perceived level of 90% effort, what ends up happening is it's exactly that. It creates a host of stress chemicals and um, flooding the system. You get tighter. The muscles actually get tighter and stiffer. You have less mobility. You have less ability to execute the movement pattern from a coordination standpoint, and you fatigue quicker. So they were always super cautious, never go above nine-tenths, because they knew nine-tenths yielded a better, faster outcome and more productive outcome than 100%. And you hear this all the time, too, in modern-day coaches, if you you know are a fan of Altus and hear Path or Stu McMillan talk, they're like, no, we never go train at 100%. We never do that, because, again, it sends the wrong message. Now, from a binary perspective... It's really simple to be like, I'm going to give 110%. you got got 120%. It sounds good in theory. But as you said, we are hardwired for ebb and flow. And I think if we take a step back and uh, we talk to athletes more about the sweet spot of training, right, as they call that, these various thresholds, that sweet spot tends to be usually between 80 to 60% of quote-unquote max effort. And this rule is, you know, across discipline um, uh, in sport conditioning, time and time again reaffirmed. We see this in endurance training, endurance work, right, with the the idea of zone two or this below sub-acidosis or lactate anaerobic threshold type work. And we see this in strength conditioning world where they say, well, you don't want to lift a too light a weight because it doesn't do anything neurologically, but you don't want to lift too heavy a weight because that breaks you down. The sweet spot tends to be what they call the two-thirds rule in weightlifting is you want to do most of your work at about a two-thirds load. And this makes total sense because all systems are always working in concert together. You cannot divorce the metabolism from the neurology. It does not matter if you're an endurance athlete or a speed power athlete. They're always going on concurrently. And if we just simply just do more work and think we'll get better and exhaust ourselves, we've missed the plot. Exactly. And I think in endurance running world, the do more work is kind of our second nature because we emphasize the physiological gains, which are often the accumulation of work over time. But it's also because running itself is a painful activity. So we put a lot of emphasis on that workplace. And I think there's also something human nature to it because this isn't just apply to endurance. It's also our kind of American ideal of, well, if you just work hard enough, you too can 
you know, reach reach the heights of the world. And we also know that that's not entirely true because our environment and everything else um, that comes around it and our situations like will impact the, the reality of that. So while there might initially be some quote unquote truth to this idea, it largely falls apart once you look at it away from a very, very narrow perspective. And the misinterpretation of what harder work is. I was uh, working with a athlete this um, recently this uh, summer who's uh, rising into a, being a college freshman. And we were talking, we we're working on form and technique and going through wickets. And I remind him, I said, look, the, the hard work is, you know, you have to think so hard about getting the correct positions through the wickets of your limbs or your body mass to make running easy. That's what hard is. Hard is the focus to have the discipline to hit the correct targets of your limbs and the correct timing and to learn this skill up front so that then running is easy. Hard work's not running's hard and just keep pressing and, as he said, kill yourself. And I go, no, there, I remind him, there's no killing ourselves in running. You, you can go that path. And it's a very difficult path where fatigue rapidly increases and the body goes into a heavily acidic state and those neurochemicals release and say shut down and stop. But the idea in training versus exercise, because they're two different things. Exercise is just about getting hot, sweaty, and tired. Anyone can do that. Training is about using exercises to help teach us skills that will be able to call upon rapidly and automatically in the heat of battle, in the moment of competition. And so having this dialogue about this and shifting his perspective from the often misinterpreted, hard is about effort and, uh, you know, on a physiological level versus hard is effort on a neurological or motor learning control level. Now a light bulb went off and he was just like, he got it. And it was awesome to see. It, exactly. I'm glad you brought that up because there's different ideas of hard and, um, and, we often in sport just think of the physiological side, but it's like, you know, sitting down and writing a book or taking a test or like reading a deep paper is quote unquote hard, even though physically our heart rate doesn't go up much, our, you know, physical exertion doesn't, but our mental capacity and brain to do and focus on that does and if anybody who's taken a final or remembers taking a final in college as you feel kind of exhausted afterwards right yes <laughs> <laughs> the same thing can apply to learning skills in sport or incredibly high uh, mental or neurological demands and we often don't appreciate that because you know it didn't quote unquote take that grit down, give effort, physical effort, et cetera. And that's often what we think about, right? When we think about motivation is most people think about motivation as grit or persistence, but motivation actually has foundations in purpose, passion, uh, curiosity. Because if you're naturally curious and passionate and you have purpose around that, you that's why you hear a lot of artists say, hey, motivation is for amateurs or for suckers. Because the motivation most people think of is that keep going on when it gets the going gets real tough. But if your purpose, your why is really strong and it's also stacked on top of that passion and curiosity, whoa, watch out. It's going to be super easy to stay motivated. It, exactly. I'm glad you brought up that nuance there. 
All right, so let's let's dive into the second one, John. <laughs> All right, and one last pitch. If you want to figure out how to do hard things better, buy Steve's new book. There it is. All right, number two. The methods that give the best results are the ideal ones for everybody. <laughs> this is gold. Oh, I'm telling you, this is just <laughs> like it's All right. 50 year old so, gold. <laughs> you know, here we go. And what I love is this was this was published by Runner's World way back in the day before when they used to be a really quality publication. <laughs> you know, when they focused on the the high level stuff. Yes, this is awesome. Um, yeah, you know, I think, again, this is, well, you know what, John? I'm going to go in a different place. I was going to go the running way, but we talk about all the time. So I'm going to tell you another story. All right. So as as you know, my wife is an elementary school teacher, literacy specialist, all that good stuff. And what, and also, you know, was a pretty high level runner. And it's interesting hearing her talk about, how teachers or how schools handle teaching kids to read hmm. oh, because wow. it's a ma- yeah. it's, it's a major problem in the u.s we have a you know the very poor literacy rate yes 50 percent 50 percent of adults in the u.s according to the census bureau can only read at a fifth grade level it, which is crazy astonishing so yes it's it's everybody wants to solve this problem well, unfortunately, things are now changing, but unfortunately for years, the way that they tried to solve this problem was similar to what we try and do and what this this um, half-truth tells us, which is they searched and searched for the magic curriculum, the magic curriculum program, which would optimize and teach everyone to read. And what happened was, is all these programs come out that are heavily kind of scripted heavily. Like, you know, you do a, then B, then C and magically all the kids in your class will be able to read. And what happened is that was an abject failure because that's not how it works in reality. And people are finally coming around to this and and the teachers for, for a long time knew this, but again, administration sometimes takes a long time to catch on. And the point is, it's the same thing that we do in sport, right? We look around for the magic curriculum, the one that will solve the problem for everybody. We look around and say, up here is the training program that will take my team to the top. You know, whether it's Daniels or Lydiard or the crazy Pavo training in high school or what have you. Mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. Or Jerry or Coughing Orner Projects, post-race workouts. Yes. The problem is we see something and we say, this is it. This is what works. I'm going to do this. And we apply it to everybody. And it doesn't work for everybody. Mm -hmm. And and that's, that's what gets at this reality is we've got to let this go. We've got to let go that there is one ideal thing. There is not. People have run super fast off all intervals. People have run super fast off of all very slow jogging and everything in between. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> oftentimes we are seduced, I think, by 
the binary approach to something, this or that, either or, right? And we always want the one leader to fall, the one thing. But as Steve and I always try to preach, it is nuanced. It is a spectrum. And it's understanding where in the spectrum different people fall when it comes to reading. Different people learn and interpret uh, learning in different ways. Some people need just a lot of rigor with their reading. Some people work in, you know, uh, uh, really like manic bouts, all in, all out. Everyone is kind of wired a little differently. It's kind of like the, you know, uh, body rhythms we have, right? People who are extreme larks are up at 4 a.m. ready to go versus extreme night owls are up at 4 p.m. ready to go, right? And sleeping through the day. And everyone works a little differently. What we see is the highest performers actually make peace with who they are and what their biology tells them they are and how they can actually digest and learn and get the most out of themselves. And they don't fight it. They don't fight it. And it's beautiful to kind of, there's a book called Rituals. I forget. I think that's the name. But goes and talks about a lot of different creative artists and performers. And everyone's path to being a successful creative performer or artist is wildly different. Some people just relied on heavy amounts of cigarettes and alcohol and staying up you know, for four days straight to produce things. Other people, you know, had really structured rigidity and had to start writing at 6 a.m. every day and stopped at 12 p.m. every day. And you get to see this, too, if you've ever watched the um, the Beatles, uh, the new Beatles documentary, right, um, that just came out about uh, Let It Be or, get, or the Get Back documentary. Um, and you see, like, the contrasting of personalities. Like, Paul McCartney at that time was like, we need a schedule. We need to accomplish something every day. And, you know, John Lennon's like, no, mate, we just got to let it – we just got to jam and let it come to us and just be a little bit more organic about it. And that's probably why that partnership worked really well for the period of time it did is because they balance each other out. But the same token, too, like, when they worked, they worked. Like, in a month – think about that. In a month, they met every day in the studio – for however long and they just worked and worked and worked and essentially produced their last two albums you know songs in a month's time wild yeah no i love that documentary and if you haven't seen it uh highly recommend it for the creative process but it also shows again that as you said the magic of acknowledging individual differences and like letting it kind of flow and flourish and that's how i see it is with athletes and we've talked about individualization many times on this podcast but it's it's you're not trying to jam the athlete into your quote unquote training program you're trying to look at the athlete have enough knowledge breadth and depth And be like, okay, how can I take the knowledge that I have plus the athlete and the characteristics they they bring to the table and then shape that? So in an ideal world, you know, I understand this is really hard, but in an ideal world, you should be able to coach someone who needs 100 miles a week Mm. and coach someone who can only run, you know, two, three days a week if that's what, you know, possible 100% yep and get the most out of them yes with with their training it it, exactly and I think that's where you know the 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 how do you avoid this half truth maybe is don't assign yourself labels and don't say that you're an xyz coach I'm a you know whatever coach you can be influenced by people that's great 
but you've got to be able to, you know, shift and change as you get someone who has different characteristics, even if it's well outside of your comfort zone. Yeah, I will. Uh, I'll say this here. This is kind of the blurb they put in the um, uh, pamphlet below that uh, half truth is only the good results of a method become public. And often a runner succeeds in spite of rather than because of the way they train. Failures of a system in comparisons with other systems aren't easy to see. And so a lot of people say, well, Lydiard's the best way because Peter Snell's 800 meter runner and he did this and look at what he did. One guy, one 800 meter runner. Yes. Phenomenal results. One, <laughs> like not all 800 meter runners are wired that way to be able to endure 100 mile weeks of training at sub acidosis or lactate threshold pace for six months. <laughs> but we often just point to that extreme outlier as kind of our guiding beacon when I'm like, no, look to, uh, you know, say Sean O'Day's coach in Minnesota, the person who got, who did good better, who got a lot of people to go on sub five in the mile. And it was this big deal and a big thing. That's where most of us should start. And once you accomplish that, sure, we can springboard to sub four, but we can't talk about sub four until we get to sub five. Yes. Love it. All right. Let's go on to another uh, one of these. Next, you get better by forcing yourself to do things you don't like to do. Okay. (laughs) This is an interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. So... Again, if we bring nuance in here, well, what I would start with is forcing often backfires. Yes. Because what happens when we force things? We resist them. We tense up. Procrastinate. Yep. It just isn't very good things. Now, and the same goes with other people. What happens is we force other people. They resist. They resent. Drag the heels, so to speak. Yep. They learn that the only reason they're doing this is because coach is forcing me to do this stuff. So I think that forcing word is important because whenever we do that, it backfires. Now, am I saying like you're going to wake up every day and be like, oh, I want to do X, Y, and Z? Of course not. Not all the time. But the point is, if you find yourself in this forcing mode for too long or, you know, even doing it too much, like you're ingraining almost this kind of negative style of, of motivation behind yourself. And then the other part of this phrase, again, which I hadn't heard before, is that latter part is, I think what we're getting at here is, yes, doing difficult things like leads to growth, but you need to do those things out of a place of exploration and finding joy in the work versus, again, feeling like I need to, have to, compelled to. Because anytime we get in that need to, have to, we know again that we're ingraining this kind of poor motivation or extrinsic motivation, which might last for a little bit, but fails when over the long haul and also fails when we need it most, right? Which is when things are going wrong. If all you've got is like, well, I've been forced to show up to practice every day to do these difficult things, then 
you know, the moment you need the motivation to show up when it's just you, mm. you're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, the doing hard things about the challenge skills balance, right? You need to feel challenged and it needs to be kind of within your skill set, but just slightly outside. And, you know, what we're talking about with the force motivation is like this controlled motivation, right? As Steve pointed out, extrinsic. And it's it's when it's like you feel obligated that you have a job to do, but you're pressured into action. And when you're pressured into action, you routinely look for shortcuts. You routinely like, I just want to figure out how to get this over with ASAP. So one, the job done isn't that good. And then two, the you know, there's always gaps or holes in it. Think of a kid who is told to eat their vegetables and Brussels sprouts and hates them. They're going to pretend to eat them, put them in the napkin, put the napkin in their lap or put the Brussels sprouts in their pockets and say, yeah, the Brussels sprouts are off my plate. They're all gone, mom and dad. And it's like, okay, you can leave now. It's like, ugh, I hate them. I'm not going to eat them, right? And, uh, you know, I'll read the the quote under here uh, that they, they gave. It's actually from Bill Bowerman. And Bill Bowerman says, if a person likes his activity, there's no need to force him or her to do it. And by implication, the Oregon coach is saying, if a runner doesn't like it, they won't tolerate it for long. Bowerman continues, I think a person can make the most of their running experience if they are enjoying it, if they have a plan, and if their objectives are realistic and they carry over an extended period of time. If they become tired of running, they should lay off of it for a little while. If they uh, if uh, they're still tired of it after that, maybe they ought to look for another activity. <laughs> and this comes back to the psychology or actually neurology of motivation. We are just basically hardwired to do things that give us a dopamine hit. And dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, those neurotransmitters, those feel-good things are so important. And if you're doing something that doesn't give you that dopamine hit, I mean, this is why, like, Cocaine is one of the most addictive drugs in the world because cocaine simply just floods the body with dopamine and then like turns off the uh, like, you know, uh, uptake systems that, you know, that rebuke it. Right. So it's like that's why people do cocaine. And then it has serious side health side consequences. But we're after the dopamine hit. And that is we are hardwired for this. Your, Your video games, your phone, cigarettes, alcohol, you name it. They're all forms of dopamine hits. And the psychology on that is super interesting. But if you, what they're saying is like, if you have this ability to like and enjoy what you're doing, i.e. dopamine, it becomes super simple. But if you don't, then what happens is cortisol flushes through, stress hormones flush through. And if you're too stressed out for too long, it's just not going to happen. Exactly. And you know, I, I love that you bring this up because... It ties into what we talked about in the scholar program when we talked about buy-in, which is especially for high school and even college coaches, what is your job and youth coaches? Yeah, you can say, oh, I want to get them better, et cetera. We all want to get them faster. But are you doing it in the way that Bowerman just described? Meaning creating the interest and enjoyment and all of that stuff, or are you trying to do it through what I would say is the cheap shortcut that might work for a little bit, but often fails over the long haul, which is that control, forcing, et cetera. And I think far too often, if an athlete ends their career whenever it is, and they, they think, oh, I never want to do that again, then we have failed them as a coach, right? 
we have failed to develop and uh, help create their motivation in a positive way. Now, am I saying that like that's going to occur? Obviously, their interest will shift, et cetera, et cetera. But we want to, during our time, like develop that motivation that is positive and good over the long haul instead of the cheap, short control, et cetera, et cetera, that, as, as we've said, like ultimately backfires. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think the goal is to, for whatever athlete you're working with in whatever discipline, is to make them love doing and participating in that sport for life life whether no matter when you meet them and the greatest compliment i can get from a high school kid is like coach i think i'm going to be a runner for life i just like to run now i just enjoy it i get the you know runner's high the positive mood boosters all those good things but like i know how to run so i'm confident in it it doesn't hurt and that's why i spend a lot of times focusing on the structure of running on the mechanics for kids is because if we can empower them with that and they can just lace up the shoes and go for the rest of their life We've given them an amazing gift. Whether we play the status games of time, place, PRs, championships, whatever, that only lasts for so long, the status games. Because once you enter outside of those status game structures, high school, college for most, and for some post-collegiate, I mean, what do you have? And it's about that purpose and having a purpose-driven practice. And we need that purpose to drive and to keep us motivated and engaged. And it might change over time. Like say Daniel Herrera, right? He's really into skateboarding now that he's retired from being a competitive miler. And that's his practice. My practice has evolved to now include kettlebell swings and kettlebell training, right? Because it's like, oh, that's something new and different. It's a challenge skill balance. It includes running, but I mean, you know, that's, ultimately what we're looking for and striving for, I think at a fundamental foundation level as coaches. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. I think that's part of what we're after. And I think we do ourselves a disservice when we focus or shift the focus too much to the solely performance. And what happens is when we think, Oh, all that matters is how fast they run. It blinds us. So don't be blinded. Don't do it. Don't do it. All right. Next is if you want to keep improving, you have to do more and more of the same work. All right. You know what I love <laughs> is all this stuff was known in the yes, 70s. I, the, every the, time the, I read that, you just see Steve's reaction. He just smiles and laughs and just like, oh, yeah, duh. <laughs> it's just like same same stuff every day. But here's why I love this. This was written in the 70s when it was in vogue. Like Lydiard, Bowerman, those guys were popularizing running and all that stuff. So here's here's the deal. Is we know that more, more, more is looking at things through a very narrow framework. Because if we zoom out and we say, oh, how do we get better? We have all these various skills from physical to mental to neurological to everything combined, physiological. And if we apply a stimulus, we adapt, we hope we get grow stronger, et cetera, get better at whatever it is. But more, 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 especially of the same thing, is just one of many ways to adapt. And if you try to adapt in the same direction, all the time, 
it's going to fundamentally like you're you're not going to prepare be prepared for the demands. So more can work, especially early on when it's like, oh, you haven't done anything, you're a clean slate. I'm gonna give you a little more, a little more, a little more, a little more. But it's only one path. We can also shift and what what we know actually is that we need to shift and change the stimuli to keep adapting. I'm going to use this analogy um, because it's kind of relevant. If for dealing with COVID and the vaccine, right? (coughs) If all we said is like, well, you didn't adapt. I'm just going to increase your dose, increase your dose, increase your dose. Eventually, that's going to where it's not going to work, right? It's like you have adapted enough. So what happens like over time, you know, and this takes time, but over time, the vaccines like they have to update and shift to the various like different uh, strands of the the virus. Now, we can't just jump right around because it's like you're injecting something and you need medical you know, studies and all that stuff for safety. But what the, what, what, you know, all the companies do with vaccines is they, they say, okay, now we're going to use this next, like this variant over here to develop this next thing or see how it works with this variant. Same kind of idea with when we're looking at adapting to anything else is we need to shift and change as the body adapts and grows. And if we don't, and we just say, oh, I'm going to add more and more and more, well, at some point, we're going to cease to adapt. And that's, you know, typically like when Steve and I start working with a new adult athlete, we always look for gaps in their recent training history. Where, what, what stuff have they not been doing? I, I see all the stuff you have been doing. And there's a reason you've switched coaches or plateaued or injured or dissatisfied with performance, what have you. But if we then address what you haven't been doing, we'll then get a training effect, this evolution, this adaptation, right? And it's cyclical, meaning that's why, again, it kind of comes back to this. All these things are related. It kind of goes back to why you can't just be a high mileage coach or speed-based coach or, you know, what have you. You got to be able to understand when that athlete has adapted enough to that training stimuli and when it's time to kind of reorient and flip the switch to continue to promote and stack that adaptation, um, you know, as the foundation for the next adaptation and then so on and so forth. That often it's a pulse. Often it's an ebb and flow. It's a back and forth, right? So sometimes, yeah, mileage might be up. Intensity might be down. Sometimes the inverse. Sometimes both mileage and intensity will be up, right? And what they say here in the uh, blurb below this half-truth is, in the uh, publication, there are other ways to do better besides doing more. In fact, that may be one of the least efficient ways to go about improving. Running mileage and time investment can only escalate so far before it conflicts with other obligations. Then it tends to get, or then becomes a drag. Instead of trying to always do more, why not get more from what you do? Concentrate on improving the quality of running instead of quantity. Instead of adding 10 miles a week, stay where you are and try to cut off 10 seconds a mile for your training runs. Very simple, yep. but very profound. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what it comes down to, right? Yep. It's like simple, but like get out of your own world of like increase, increase, increase. 
more, more, more. Sometimes more is good. Sometimes more gets in the way. Vary the stimulus up. Yep. All right. Next running half truth advice to be ignored. If it works for him, it will work for me. <laughs> this is the, you know, this is the problem of the internet, right? Yep. I mean, it was bad enough back in the day, but I feel like this this problem has gotten a hundredfold worse. Oh, because yes, it's accelerated. <laughs> you you can just go on Strava or whatever running site and see what somebody did and be like, I'm I'm just gonna copy them. And I've I've seen this before. You know, I, I've warned people against this. I remember, um, uh, gosh, it's happened several times over the years. People have like looked at my high school running log and been like, I'm just going to copy that. I'm like, no, don't do that. Don't like it's not going to work for you. <laughs> like you are not me. You know, you were not me in 2003, whatever it is. So just because it worked for someone else doesn't mean it's going to work for you just because you know someone else really improved and got better in this situation doesn't mean that that training or even that training program is going to fit with you it's the fit at this specific time in your career and you see this all that i mean the, the one way to know this is pretty simple you look at every high level coach in the world and you look at their training groups and even though they're some of the best coaches in the world, they have athletes who don't get better, who regress, who get worse, who get injured, who fail to meet their quote unquote potential. Even the high level, again, professional groups, there are athletes who it doesn't work for. And why is that? Are these coaches horrible, bad? No, it's just because every style you know, every approach, every coach isn't going to work for everybody just because it worked for, you know, Joe or Jill over there and they became an Olympian or improved a ton or what have you doesn't mean that's going to work for you. So it's about the fit. The easiest thing in the world as a coach, right, is to get this idea of, uh, you know, complacency or false sense of import or um, efficacy in that my method right now is the best method always and for everyone, just because you're having short-term success or repeated success. But to me, the things that always keep me up at night are the athletes who don't get better that I work with or don't see as much of a, a magnitude and uh, bump in performance. And that they've spurred the innovation and the curiosity to figure out why, you know, how do we not reach that student essentially? And the copy and paste phenomena copycat syndrome and you hear this a lot because we are hardwired to mimic right this copy and just mimic what ends up happening if you take it at face value nine times out of ten you lose a lot of the nuance that the successful practitioner or athlete had with that i'll give an example here of the exact uh, of superficial copy and pasting from the wickets from runners course that we have in the scar clubhouse so wickets are great right or mini hurdles as people call them because they teach people the correct structure about how to run with reactivity. So we have two major reflexes, the stumble reflex and the cross eccentric reflex that can help us and actually our legs to run with reactivity, just kind of bounce off the ground. You see this in sprinters, you see this in, you know, really highly successful distance runners all the way from the 800 up to the 10K, even the marathon to a certain degree. But because the basic structure of running should be the same all the way from whether you're jogging or run or sprinting under 
10 seconds, you know, for 100. And you see this with Marcel Jacobs. His basic running structure is exactly the same. We have, you know, a video of him on the, in the Scholar Clubhouse jogging, a video of him running at half speed, being running at full speed. And the whole, the basic structure is the same, the amplitude changes. So what happens is when we're running rickets, we're trying to teach the body and the brain and the nervous system to accept how to engage these reflexes and these reflexive arcs, which again, communicate really rapidly because it's just going to the spinal cord level. So instead of traveling all the way up to the brain and then all the way back down, the whole distance of the spinal cord, it just goes down to the lower levels in the lumbar sacrum area and then boom, 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 that information is related and, uh, related back to the muscle, right? Very fast mechanism. Well, if you just run over wickets, you'll get some of the engagement. You'll get some reflexive because it's all about how reflexive or how reactive the stride is. So if you just haphazardly run over it, right? Trying to say, put the foot, your uh, foot down in front of the oncoming wicket or in the middle between the two mini ladders or mini hurdles. And that will work and it'll look good to the naked eye. But the reality is you need to put the foot down or have that goal, that target of putting your foot down in front of, just in front of the oncoming wicket. Why? What it does, it spurs a greater reflex. And this is measured by a greater hip flexion on the swinging thigh. And I've done this with myself and our athletes. And you can get about a anywhere between a 15 to 25 degree increase in hip flexion. So the goal is to get the hip flexion when you're running through wickets to almost basically 90 or parallel with the ground, right? That's significant. <laughs> like 15 to 25 degrees is significant. So you can get a little benefit by just copying and imitating. But if you understand what we're trying to do with teaching people how to create a, a correct organization and running structure, and why we're doing uh, emphasizing the targets we're emphasizing, and then breaking it down and understanding the general structure we want to um, make the athlete's brain and body comfortable with and have stability in and have highly coordinated in, in all jogging to sprinting uh, phases of running or velocities of running, then it comes really clear what to do and what not to do. But this is nine times out of 10, that's the easy button. I'll read what they, um, they wrote as the blurb because it's just spot on uh, below this. The uh, here it is: fad and superstition surround uh, surrounding training styles. The ways of current champions are widely copied in hopes that some of the magic will rub off. It invariably ends up rubbing the copier the wrong way. The champions are strong, experienced runners whose schedules are tailored to meet their own needs and own needs only. Others must do the same for themselves. And even if they can handle the same loads, the results aren't guaranteed to be equal. There are many, many other factors in a champion's makeup besides training methods alone. I love it. Yeah, I, I, mean, love that last, just... I, I love that last line. Yes. There are many, you know, besides the training, but so many, so often we focus so much on the training method and we think this is the reason they're successful. This is it. This is it. This is it. Yeah. And it blinds us. It does. It does. Yeah. Really good one. All right. I know Steve's going to love this next one a lot. Now remember, 1973. This was known back then. Here's the next half truth. Resting never got anyone anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, I all mean, the stuff, <laughs> come on, all the stuff we talk about is, is just it's all known. There's um, nothing new under the sun. It's nothing new. We just forgot I, it. You know, I I love it. Um, obviously, <laughs> because it gets back. I mean, it's rest. It's it's a vital component of it. It's a vital component of adaptation, the cycle that we've talked about so much. And I think it it also goes with this kind of machismo, you know, a tough model of like, oh, I'm just going to work, 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 work. And this is what you do when you're dedicated. When in reality, often what happens is the courage to step back, to rest, or the courage to take it easy is often what separates those who stay in it for the long haul versus those who just kind of burn out and burn quickly. So mm. I love it, man. As I said, <laughs> these these are these are great. I'm, I'm just kinda you know, we don't need to do any research. <laughs> we don't. We just need to find these old pamphlets. <laughs> yeah. Find out how the guys in the seventies did it and we'll just remind people. Yeah. Hey Bill Bowerman, hey. Igloy, like Van Aken, they said this stuff. Yeah. So Oh man. Yeah. That's, I think that's what it comes down to, right? All this stuff is about the cult of more, 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 more. And it's easy. It's easy to fall in the cult of doing more. And I've said this many a times, if we don't know what to do, we usually do more of it. The harder part, the harder thing is to do less better. That's the hard part. Do less better. And this comes back to the minimum effective dosage concept and all these other things. But it really takes some a practitioner who knows their craft really well to discern what they need to focus on of the highest quality, the highest training translation effect, adaptive effect, and then do it better with higher quality. And oftentimes we think of higher quality as simply, hey, make like they said before, cut off 10 seconds a mile. But higher quality in say kettlebell swinging and also in say the wickets for runner course and training protocols are very similar in that you're actually trying to use less of your extremities to move your body mass and have the extremities be reactive and have them essentially be like rubber bands or springs that are passive agents that are interpreting pressure and signals and use your spine core torso axial compartment whatever you want to call it that middle part where all the important organs are and muscles and bones and and, and and nerves and, you know, different systems, right, to do the work for you. But a lot of times what we do is we end up overemphasizing the ability of the extremities to do the work because we look at, oh, they got big guns or they got sexy calves or, you know, this or that, right? And we get sidelined by these accessory components and we, we get mistracked by, we got to build those up. And then we have runners have traditionally weak cores or underactive cores or weak glutes, underactive glutes, right? How many times have we heard that? How common it is? How can you run and do something for seven to 14 hours a week, one to two hours a day for months or years on hand and not be strong in those areas? Well, because they're not engaged or under engaged in the wrong way. And so by doing less better, sometimes it means you have to stop running as many miles per week in the way you're running them because it's not working everything in the right harmony. Go back to first principles. We learn the structure of running and how to run and then be very humble and go, oh gosh, I thought I was strong, but I was really as fake strong. And then go, oh, I got to get better now. And then 
lay off the chasing the Strava goal records or local legend status or whatever it is. That's just some artificial, superficial, you know, gamification of things and just get better at getting better and going back to the mastery principle. Yeah. I mean, that's really what it is, is how do you get better at getting better? So yeah, I love it. Yeah. I love this, this whole thing. We got two more, this Steve, two more. All right, two more. two more. Let's nail it. I can't race at long distances by training at short ones or race faster by training slower. That's like a oh. two-in-one, double-double. Well, this is a two-in-one, <laughs> and I love it because yes. it addresses both sides of it. It like is. Like both extremes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Dang. <laughs> this is a, a, a twofer. It was. I love it. It was. It's good. You know, this, this is, this is great. This is great because it addresses again, both sides of the fears, which are the fears of the extremes of like, Oh, you know, if I do, I, I, any long stuff is going to hurt my, my speed or faster ability run fast in something. And that's not true. It's the appropriate amount, right? That does that does stuff. It's when we go way out of whack of our demands that we get things wrong, and then it also addresses the the other f- side of it, <laughs> um, which is you know the flip side. So you know one thing that I'd I'd ad- I'd add here is you know I remember talking to uh, to Tom Telez about this, and I'll address this side, and maybe you can address the other. Is that you know, he'd tell me it's, it was like, Steve, you know, in the summer and the beginning of our off-season training, I used to take Carl Lewis and all these Leroy and all these guys, and we'd go to uh, Memorial Park, which had a three-mile loop, and he'd say, I want you to run this three miles. And, the, and of course, they weren't doing this when peaking, but he was like, you know, a little bit of some endurance work was good for a number of reasons. A, psychologically, it helps them. And he said, B, it helps our aerobic ability to recover and handle workloads later. Now, we're not doing this all the time. We're not loading them up on miles, but the occasional three miles around you know, Memorial Park, especially at the beginning, was vital. And that strikes me today as, and I know that's not in vogue, but often you see sprinters or sprint coaches or even middle distance coaches who are like, you know, any sort of aerobic work is going to shift our our fiber type and then we'll be slower and slower. Well, if you look at the data, anything you do will shift your fiber type. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So if I just went and sprinted and only did 100 meter repeats, you will shift from a pure kind of fast twitch B fiber to a more intermediate fast twitch A fiber. Why? Because that's what's appropriate. We get this idea wrong in the sense that we think, oh, only fast twitch B fibers. It's like, no, any amount of volume of any sort of work shifts us to this it's slightly more intermediate fiber because our, our body realizes like, oh, we need to like produce a lot of force, but we're also training and we're not just sitting on our ass and like gonna just jump out of the chair and sprint away. We have to have a little bit of this uh, resiliency that comes with more of an intermediate fiber. So again, 
on this side of the equation, I love it because it's not that, you know, long stuff is evil for short, short speed or short ability or middle distance ability. It's the appropriate dose. And what the appropriate dose is, it's going to differ for Carl Lewis versus Peter Snell or, you know, or who or Sebco or whoever. But that is your job to say, not be like, oh, no, no, this is going to kill our this won't make me faster over short stuff. It's like, no, it all matters. What is the appropriate amount for your goals and adaptation that you need for your event and then vigil that is sitting in front of you? Yeah, it's tough because it's the variables are always shifting. Right. And that's the idea we want. We tend to think of things as cement set in stone. There's one way, my way or the highway. Reality is the body, brain, the whole organism that is a human being is highly plastic and adaptive. That's why training works. (laughs) It's why it fundamentally works. You can't train, say, bone length. There's certain talents that people have, like you can't alter femur length or trochanter length or what have you. But we can alter different things that were meant to be evolved and adapt based off demand. If the demand's there, it adapts in that direction. If the man's gone, doesn't. It atrophies, right? And even in going back to sprinters, we tend to, as distance runners, think of the continuous running method as the only method to build the aerobic systems and capacity. That is a method. But today, actually, a lot of sprint coaches use what they call tempo runs. And their version of tempo run is much version different than the Daniels version of a tempo run. And I remember when I was at Portland State, you know, we had a, a really good uh head sprint coach and in the off season or beginning of the season, October and November, they would do tempo runs. So I was like, coach, what's tempo run? He said, well, we're going to run 600 meters at this pace, you know, which they called 800 meter a mile pace, take a really small sliver, short recovery, like 30 seconds, 60 seconds rest, do another 600 meters, take sliver recovery, do another 600 meters. That's a set. They do somewhere from two to four miles of this type of work. That sounds a lot like alternation surge training or lactic dynamic training or what I'm trying to call flux training now to just give it a clearer name. Alternations, if, if Canova or modulations from Canova, it's all the fartlek, it's all the same, but it's like they got the three miles in. <laughs> it just wasn't continuous. And sometimes it hurts our head to think of things and add up all these components and think, well, if if we stop, we're not getting as much of a benefit, but that's not what interval training was about, right? When all the, you know, German scientists and everything talked about interval training, they're like, the interval trains, the stimulus is what happens in the first 10 to 20 seconds after you stop the running. The heart keeps beating at that same level as if you're running, even though the activity is not taking place. So you get this little longer bump and boost by really jacking up the heart rate. And then taking a quick short break and then it works like it's like a fake work on the heart for 10 to 20 seconds. You recover again, do that again, do that again, do that again. And they just were like, oh, I can get an extra three, four minutes of high stress on the heart without performing high stress activity on the muscle tissue. Brilliant from an interval training standpoint when it was first founded. Then we forgot all about that because we're like, how fast are you running? How fast are you running? How fast are you running? It's like. Well, go back to first principles. What are we trying to do with interval training? Get more time under tension, under high tension, what we call VO2 max now, for the heart. And you just, that's how you did That's how they did it. Yep. 
That's brilliant. I mean, it is, but we forget, we often forget these first principles, right? And we're like, if I'm not physically moving the limbs, I must not not be getting benefit. But it's like, if you do, and that's why interval training was so high in volume, 20 times 200. Yep. Well, add 20, 20 times 15 seconds up, you know, real quick math there. You got five extra minutes of free time under tension on that heart, just standing around. Yep. We forget the lessons of yesterday. Yeah. I mean, as, as today's podcast is shown. Yes. <laughs> All right. All right. Last one. If I run enough, no other exercises or training are necessary or advisable. Oh, man. Mm. Gosh. Mm. 1973. All right. So here you go. <laughs> you know, you've got the 70s and they're saying, wait, wait, wait. Don't forget the other stuff. Like, yes, running is the main thing, but you can't forget the other stuff. And running a lot doesn't replace everything else. And still, you know, 50 years later, we still struggle with this one. And I think here is it's, it's to me, it's, again, it comes back to training stimulus and adaptation. Are you taking advantage of all the different stimuluses to develop the skills necessary? If you're just running and running a lot, you're not. If you're not sprinting, if you're not doing some sort of plyometric aspect, which could be sprinting in itself, if you're not doing something that has a high neural demand or some high strength output, you're not. Now, I'm not saying that like, oh, a freshman in high school needs to be doing all of these things, but... All of these things are skill sets that you can develop and um, and places to get further adaptation. So, you know, utilize it all. I, I love it. I asked a, I asked a, a, a local high school coach buddy of mine uh, this season, like how his jumpers got so good or get so good every year. Because I just I kind of noticed that like his high jumpers, long jumpers, triple jumpers, like a lot of improvement. And that's you know, jumping's in track and field. That's technical very tricky discipline to get better at and you know most of our jumpers get a little bit better but not like disproportionate outsized gains like he was enjoying and you know what he said to me and make sure they play basketball in the off season <laughs> like they're on the basketball team in during winter and like oh smart because <laughs> you know that's it, it that was one reason why the high school sports season was meant to be have variability, right? You would play different sports in a different season. And the way they kind of actually set it up when you step back and look at it from a training standpoint, highly sequential, really intelligent, right? And it was like, if you're on the football track, right? It was, you played football, you did wrestling, you did track. And they all kind of cycled into each other, right? If you were, say, like a female, like jumper athlete, you did volleyball in the fall, basketball in the winter, high jump, you know, long jump, whatever, in in the spring. Made perfect sense. And so this idea of diverse sampling is really important. And we tend to go from, we think specialized means over-specialized because we always take things to the binary extreme. So this is what they're talking about is you don't, you need to specialize. The main thing is the main thing, but you don't need to over-specialize and just do that one thing, right? And that's the really difficult, again, thing for us to wrap around is this nuance that Steve and I are, you know, very passionate about as well as, you know, Brad um, in the Growth Equation podcast. Uh, it's 
the nuance, the nuance, the nuance, because that little bit of extra spice or understanding goes a long way to change the complete composition or experience of the the meal, you know, and exactly. And I love love it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, But 50 year old text with the most potent, relevant, I mean, we could just publish this as just like, hey, just this is it. This is this is a good guide to training. I'm sure Steve can make it into a really awesome book and make it in 200 pages. But it, you know how long this was? Two pages long on a small, small little like half sheet pamphlet. <laughs> you know, sometimes simple is the best, best way to go. So hey, thanks for bringing this up. And just as an aside, as we close this out, you know, again, this is. Uh, the brilliance of 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 looking back in the history to remind you of lessons that maybe they struggled with that we sometimes forget. You know what I think and, next next one we'll do we'll do we'll go through the guiding principles because these are guiding principles that they laid down from a synthesis of interviews with Bowerman, Van Aken, and Igloy. And I'm not going to tell Steve again, but there's ten guiding principles. And I was just looking over right. them now, and I was like, oh, yeah, nailed it. So. Because I think we, as Vern Gambetta says, there's nothing new in our sun, and we have to know what came before us to know what's ahead of us and do and get more out of what's ahead of us today by looking back at what was done yesterday. All right. Well, then we will tease that up for next time. So if you enjoyed this one, you know, share it with a fellow friend, coach, etc., and check out the Scholar Program for more and deeper dives into the history of training. We've got all sorts of courses going back on all of these great coaches. So once again, thanks for listening, and we really enjoy and are thankful that you know you come back every week and allow John and I to riff and sometimes on some random historical <laughs> document that John found. Yes, I'm really good at going deep, deep into the archives, but that's what the people want. And that's what we're here to do is give you all what you want. So thank you.